Good morning. There you go, seven of you. Uh, my name is Jared Lawson. Welcome to the Parkway Church. I know it's been a long, hard, cold week, so I pray that uh, the Word of God warms our hearts this morning as we continue to look at 1 Corinthians. So one of the things that you can know about me uh, just by looking is I'm a very you know, generic-looking white American, okay? Very generic, just normal white guy. And what that primarily means is I was raised to love American sports. I was raised to love football, right? Football is life. I was told by several, several, now that I think about it, sad fathers as I was in high school that, you know, the glory days of high school football is as good as life gets. So just soak it in. I thought, that's real discouraging. I'm 17, but I feel like you should be giving me better advice than that. But I was raised to love football. I was raised to love basketball. I was raised to love hockey, kind of. I mean, this is still Texas. Basically, we just watch the movie Miracle over and over again, right? Watching us take it to those commie Soviets. And so I was raised to love American sports and I was primarily raised not to love that sport that the other world seemed to be so obsessed with, soccer, or what they ridiculously call football, right? And so uh, as I became an adult, something happened that would bring this monumental shift. I fell in love with a European a European Norwegian woman, and as we're dating and falling in love, and I'm beginning to court her as the gentleman that I am, and I propose, uh, she says yes, of course, uh, and then I think, I have to, you know, I have in-laws that are coming that I need to really impress. I know I just exude confidence, but I'm actually really uh, you know, insecure about what people think about me. And so in-laws, it's like, these are the people that it's most important to impress. And so they're Norwegian and I have like this you know, six month period before I meet them. So I'm like, okay, Norwegians, I'm writing down things to you know, break the ice. Vikings, yeah? Okay, what else? Uh, and then it hits me, Europeans love soccer. Europeans love soccer, and so I launched into this massive fact-finding mission for soccer, you know, studying every country has a league, and they're all kind of equally as good, and then they have another league where the best teams play, and then the players go play for their nation and the World Cup, and that's what Americans watch so that we can chant USA even though we're horrible at soccer. And so I'm figuring all this out, uh, and I'm watching game after game, and it was horrible. Okay, you're just watching soccer. They're passing it backwards for some reason, right? You just go to the goal and kick it in. I don't understand why they're passing backwards. And then the worst offense, they're allowed to tie. And not only tie, they're allowed to tie zero to zero. I thought this should be illegal. And then as I'm watching, as I'm borderline, you know, considering calling off the engagement because this is just too much torture, the day of great revelation came. And I watched two teams and one team had the greatest player to ever play soccer. Let's all say his name, we all know who it is. One, two, three, Michael Jordan. Okay, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Lionel Messi, five foot six Argentinian. I'm watching, bored, waiting, and then the game starts and Messi starts to play and all of a sudden, the smoke clears and what I once thought was a foolish waste of time became the most beautiful game I had ever seen in my entire life. I began waking up at 5 a.m. to watch these games with Messi. You know, he's playing in Spain. There's a time difference. Uh, you know, we have soccer here, but it's, how do you describe American soccer? Bad and not worth watching. So watching Messi, waking up at 5, I'm beginning to evangelize this sport to other people. No, no, no. It's not the most boring thing in the world. It's incredible. You just have to watch Messi play, and then you'll get it. And so because of Messi, what I once thought, again, was just a foolish waste of time had become one of my greatest obsessions 
and the beauty of the game was revealed to me and I now had the understanding that the rest of the world had about soccer and I was transformed as a result. And as ridiculous as that sounds, Paul uh, today in 1 Corinthians is going to talk about how this hidden plan of salvation, he's been talking about God's hidden wisdom, the gospel, this hidden plan of salvation. Today we're gonna see, he's gonna say, it has been revealed to us. What the world has not understood, God's wisdom that the world has not understood is going to be revealed to us by the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to bring three primary things. We're gonna look at the revelation of the Spirit, the understanding of the Spirit, and the transformation of the Spirit. So let me pray and then we will jump into 1 Corinthians. Father, I pray that you would uh, open our eyes to your word, Lord, that as we continue to look at 1 Corinthians and we look pr- uh, primarily at just the beauty of your gospel, that our hearts would be convicted by it. That even as we uh, look at a sermon about the Spirit's revelation, understanding from the Spirit and transformation of the Spirit, I pray that you would send your Spirit right now to give us a clearer understanding of the gospel, that you would transform us, that we would leave this place changed, not just challenged by a few application points, but actually changed by your Spirit. Uh, Give me the words, Father, I pray in your Son's holy name, amen. Okay, so... We're in chapter two, we're in the middle of a letter. You do realize uh, that when Paul writes these letters, the people receiving the letters, the Corinthians or you know, uh, the Philippians, when they get a letter from Paul, they don't do what we do. They don't say, great, here's a letter from Paul. Let's read a line every week for the next year. They just read it, okay? So we need to see what Paul has said already to understand what we're gonna talk about today. So remember the, the context here. Corinth, the church in Corinth, Paul went on a missionary journey, we see this in in the book of Acts, planted a church and then moved on and the church uh, begins to thrive with the gospel and then all of a sudden there are some major, major problems that Paul begins to hear about and primarily the problem that we've seen thus far in chapter one and chapter two is that they're being drawn back into the world drawn back into the world's wisdom, the wisdom of the world. And so Corinth is a major Roman city and one of the uh, normal things that would happen is these great speakers, these great philosophers would go and they would draw great crowds who would pay to come hear their wisdom and they would teach the people how to get a leg up, how to advance socially, things like that. And so the Corinthians, the, the Christians in Corinth are being drawn back into the wisdom of the world and they're beginning to drastically misunderstand the gospel as a result. And so Paul hears this and is writing 1 Corinthians to remind them of the gospel, remind them of the implications that the gospel has for our living. What does it look like to live out the gospel? And so the first thing that we've kind of seen through chapter one and chapter two is Paul is displaying the wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God and how foolish the wisdom of the world is compared to the wisdom of God. And he even says, when I came to you and I preached this gospel that you believe, I did not come to you with the eloquent words of the world, but rather the message of the cross. I didn't come to you with this wisdom of the world. I came to you with the wisdom of God, the message of the cross, which by the way, the world thinks is foolish. The world, Zach said this a couple weeks ago, the world looks at Christians and says, you worship a homeless Jew that was crucified. I'm confused. What is happening here? Your gospel says, if you want to advance, become a servant, humble yourself. That's ridiculous. If I want to advance, I get others to serve me. The world looks at this wisdom of God and says, that's ridiculous. That gospel of yours is foolishness. And yet Paul says, this gospel that the rest of the world calls foolish is God's plan to redeem the entire world. Rather than it being foolish, it's actually this wisdom of the world that is foolish. And last week in particular, as Paul's laying this out, he's going to say this gospel, this wisdom of God has been hidden. 
It's this mysterious secret wisdom of God that's been hidden from everyone's eyes and even quotes Isaiah 64. This, has been, this gospel has been hidden throughout the ages. He quotes Isaiah 64. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who loved him. And that's where we ended. We ended on this great cliffhanger of this, this wisdom of God. It's been hidden from everyone's eyes. No eye has seen it, no ear heard, no heart even imagined what God has prepared. And on that great cliffhanger, we come to our passage today, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. These things, these, this hidden gospel, this hidden wisdom of God that has been hidden throughout the ages, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So he starts off with this unthinkable declaration. Since the fall, since Genesis 3, when man turns from God into their sin, the question has been, how is this sin problem, how is this broken world going to be put back together? That's the question throughout the entire Bible. We've turned from God, we've lost fellowship with God as a result, we're now conquered by death, we're slaves to sin. How is God going to fix this? How is man going to be saved? And we see these promises all throughout the Old Testament, right? We see Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God promises there is gonna come one from the seed of woman who will eventually crush the head of the serpent. We see later on, Abraham is promised, someone will come from your family who will bless all the nations. These promises that look forward, even David is promised, one of your sons will be an eternal king who will reign in an eternal kingdom. Even the prophets, one day God will write his law on your heart. He'll take away your heart of stone. He'll give you a heart of flesh. He'll even put his spirit within you and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. There's all these promises and the world is constantly misunderstanding it. In fact, they kill the prophets who declare these incredible promises. The world is constantly misunderstanding even when Jesus actually comes. He comes saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the world completely misunderstands the type of savior that he is. What what do they think in Jesus' day? They think, oh, this is the Messiah, yes. What's he gonna do? He's gonna conquer Rome. He's gonna put us back on top of the world. It's gonna be like David's day again where we were the rulers of all things. And think about it, Jesus would be a pretty good military leader can heal people, can raise from the dead, right? You lose a soldier, Jesus just raised him back up. Soldiers are hungry, just multiply food, easy. Oh, and he can, you know, control the wind and the waves. That's, you know, advantageous in military battle. And so they think he's going to conquer Rome. And then, I mean, even think about Peter's great confession. Jesus finally says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. And I'm gonna go die. I'm gonna be crucified, and what does Peter do? Does he say, that's right, no. He rebukes Jesus, right? And then Jesus rebukes him back, calls him Satan. Jesus calling you Satan, not the best thing, but what does he say? You have man's way of thinking, not the Lord's. Even with Jesus physically there, his disciples constantly misunderstanding this hidden wisdom of God, this plan of salvation that God has prepared is constantly hidden from everyone's eyes. They're constantly misunderstanding it. And now with that in mind, feel the weight of Paul's words here when he says, this hidden plan that even Peter is misunderstanding has been revealed to you, believer, Christian, through the Spirit. What the centuries have longed to look at, you freely gaze into because the Spirit has revealed it to you. Do not blow by this first line. One of the most challenging things for us in the South, where Christianity is normal, at least for now, 
is keeping the unthinkable realities of the gospel, the worship-provoking realities of the gospel burning in our hearts. It's so easy to just hear something, move on, let it grow dull. But the Bible just said, what time has been waiting for has been revealed to you. In fact, Peter, the one who missed it when he eventually sees it, in 1 Peter, he's writing and he says, when the prophets prophesied, they knew they weren't serving themselves, they were serving you. They knew they were looking forward to something that you were going to taste. They could only foresee it, you were gonna taste it. In fact, he says, the angels long to look into this salvation that's been revealed to you. Do not let this incredible truth just blow by. Yes, of course, we know the Spirit does the revealing. No, no, no. Feel the weight of Paul's words here. What the world has longed for and constantly misunderstood, we now see because God has revealed it through his Spirit. This hidden wisdom this plan of salvation that God, when we were nothing but rebels, sent his son to live the life we should have lived, die the death we should have died, be raised victorious, conquering the enemy that we can never conquer, establishing the perfect kingdom of justice and peace, and then saying, come, be children of the Father. That has now been revealed to you. So Paul starts off with this unbelievable bombshell and then the next question is if the spirit is the one doing the revealing right it's been revealed to us through the spirit if God has known this hidden wisdom it's been hidden from everybody else how does the spirit know it it's kind of the next logical question how does the spirit know this great hidden wisdom of God and so let's look at verse 10 and 11 Paul's going to give us the spirit's credentials here for the spirit searches everything even the depths of God for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So he's gonna give us the spirit's credentials. How does the spirit know this hidden wisdom of God? The spirit searches the depths of God, he says. What does that mean? What does that mean? We, there's a lot of ideas kind of out there, interpretations of this. Uh, Paul actually tells us in the next verse, but is it he searches God's nature, he searches his being, as he just kind of, as God is infinite, he's like flying around, looking around God's infinity. Is that what that means? I think what Paul is meaning here is the spirit knows, or rather comprehends the depths of God's thoughts. He's gonna make that really clear in the next verse, but... Uh, let me put it this way. You know your thoughts. Let's look at Paul, Paul's example. Who, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit that is in him? You know your thoughts better than anybody else, right? Because they're your thoughts. So me, I, I know my thoughts better than you do because I'm thinking them and you're not, right? Uh, so I am, I am very uh, emotionally wired, a guy who can cry easy, but in a manly way, you know, like while doing push-ups, I'm crying, things like that. And so when I get in conflict, my kind of gut reaction is, oh, I just, I just want to tell people my intent. If they just knew what I was thinking when I said this offensive thing to them, they'd be fine. And so I'm constantly, you know, hey, I said this, here's what I meant. And surely when they feel, you know, the warm fuzzies that I'm feeling, they won't be mad at me anymore. And then they'll say, you know, no, you said this, so clearly you think this horrible thing. And I say things like, I... I I don't want to offend you, but I know my thoughts better than you do, right? They're my thoughts. And so again, here, Paul is saying, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And what he's doing here is he's shedding light on the Trinity, on our Trinitarian God. The Son, or the Spirit and the Son, but he's talking about the Spirit here, uniquely knows the thoughts of God. Why? Because he is God. Because the Spirit is God. The Spirit isn't a force, 
Don't misunderstand the Spirit. The Spirit isn't a force. He's not simply the breath of God. He's not simply literally the thoughts of God. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, God himself. And so as God's thoughts are infinite, the Spirit infinitely knows the thoughts of God. And so Paul is essentially saying here, you want to know the Spirit's credentials for revealing God's secret hidden wisdom? The Spirit's God, right? It's pretty good credentials, I would say. And, And notice here, The only way, not only does the spirit uniquely know the thoughts of God, the only way any of us can know this hidden wisdom of God is through the spirit. The only way any of us have access to this gospel is through the spirit. No one, Paul says, comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The thoughts of God cannot be divined. They cannot be reached by any amount of human wisdom. No amount of reading the tea leaves will bring you any closer to them the Spirit of God alone has to reveal them. As the great uh, 20th century Swiss theologian Karl Barth said, God is known through God alone. God, the Spirit, has to reveal the thoughts of God. Outside of the Spirit, you cannot know them. Jesus, by the way, is, is constantly pointing to this. If you've ever read John 14, 15, 16, 17, the upper room discourse, kind of the uh, unique Last Supper scene that the Gospel of John gives us, Jesus has some really peculiar things to us. He says things like, hey, by the way, it's better that I leave you, right? You disciples are stressed because I'm saying, hey, I'm going to die pretty soon. It's better for you if I go. Why? Because if I go, the Father will send the Spirit and the Spirit will guide you into all truth. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. It's better that I go so that God will send the Spirit because the Spirit will reveal all things. Even Jesus points to this same reality that Paul's talking about here, which means this revelation of the Spirit is completely, completely by the grace of God. Try as hard as you might, you will come no closer to knowing this secret hidden wisdom, this plan of salvation on your own apart from the Spirit. The Spirit has to come reveal it to you. In our culture, Salvation is often described at least, you know, in our popular culture as, you know, we're all on these different paths, but we're all going up the same mountain, right? So Christians have a path up this mountain, Muslims have a path, Hindus, you know, New Age people, it's, you know, different paths, but they all lead to, the, lead to the same destination. And the God of the Bible would say, there's not many paths to salvation, not many paths to God. There's not even one path up to God. Man cannot rise up to God at all. If you want to be saved, God has to come down to you. And the son comes down, and he lives the life you should have lived, dies the death you should have died, gives you free salvation, and the spirit comes down, and he indwells in your heart, he convicts you of sin, and he reveals the hidden wisdom of God completely, completely by his grace, which means the gospel, in one sense, is incredibly exclusive, No one, in the same way that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. The Spirit says, no one understands the thoughts of God. No one understands the reality of the gospel except through me. It's incredibly exclusive. And in another sense, is incredibly inclusive. One of the things that's blowing away so many of the apostles in the book of Acts is the Spirit, as people are getting converted and the Spirit is falling on them, he's not just falling, on Jews, he's falling on Gentiles, and it's blowing them away. Peter's blown away when the Spirit falls on Cornelius, and people are, uh, the nations are being converted. There's no hint of partiality in the gospel. There's no hint, the, the Spirit doesn't just fall on a particular ethnic group. The Spirit doesn't just fall on a social class or a certain amount of education. The Spirit 
gives completely by his grace. In a sense, Christianity, the gospel, is the most inclusive religion on the planet because it is completely by the grace of God. He falls on man, revealing this hidden wisdom of God. That's the first thing Paul's gonna point to. This incredible gospel has been revealed by the Spirit, the revelation of the Spirit. And so the next thing he's gonna turn to is how does that new revelation, this revelation that we have, that the ages have been waiting for, how does that change our understanding? How does that change our understanding? So that's the next thing he's gonna cover, the understanding that this great revelation of the Spirit brings. Let's look at verse 12 together. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Again, remember the context. The Corinthians are being lured away by uh, this, this wisdom of the world. You know, it's normal to go uh, hear these you know, great speakers and pay for it and things like that. So they're being lured away by this wisdom of the world. And so Paul is going to draw uh, the strongest contrast imaginable. And he's gonna say, there's two spirits that lead to two different types of understandings. There's the spirit of God that leads to the understanding of the gospel and there's the spirit of the world that leads to the understanding of the world. And the spirit of the world draws great crowds, it gets amens, it seems right to everybody, right? Everyone is fist pumping in this great spirit of the world, this understanding of the world, but in the end, it leads to death. What are some examples of that in our day? What happens in our day if someone steps out of line socially? Someone, someone slips up, especially a, a public figure. What does our culture do? Cancel, right? Remove, ruin them, right? They're a danger to society. Let's completely remove them. No chance of redemption. If you notice what happens there, us doing the canceling, you are just as much a tyrant, just as much an oppressor as the person that you think you're removing for the good of the culture. What happens when someone has suffered abuse? Are they told, forgive your abuser? Or are they told, you know what you need to do to be healed? Take the power back. You need to take the power back. And as a result, what you're really doing is just covering your brokenness with hatred and with bitterness because your efforts are now focused on crushing the person who crushed you. You've come no closer to healing. In fact, you're just masking the brokenness that's really there. How does our culture solve racism? Let's divide and judge people by the color of their skin. Right? The exact opposite of MLK's dream. Let's judge people not by the content of their character. Let's divide them and judge them by the color of their skin. In the efforts to solve racism, we become racist. There is a way that seems right to man, and in the end, it leads to death. Proverbs 14, 12. That is the wisdom of the world. It seems right, it draws the crowds, and in the end, it will leave you just as broken arguably more broken than before. You're just as much an oppressor and it will eventually lead to your own demise. That's the wisdom of the world. And Paul here is saying, that is not the spirit you have received. That is not the understanding you have received. You have received the spirit of God. Why? Verse 12, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. The spirit brings this new understanding of the gospel. So now we can lay down power. Why? because we know our God has all the power and he is infinitely more just than I am. He's infinitely more caring than I am. He's infinitely more loving than I am. How much better is it that he has all the power than me? We can now forgive because we've been forgiven. We can now pray for those who persecute us. Why? Because our savior took the ultimate persecution on our behalf. 
we have this new gospel understanding that is, could not be more counter to the spirit of the world, to the understanding of the world. It's given us this new understanding. Our ethnic enemies become our family. You want to become strong, become weak, and rely on the strength of the Lord. You want to find your life, you lose it for the sake of your Savior. Do you see how counter that is? Paul's saying, don't be drawn back into this wisdom of the world. Remember the spirit that you've received. And then notice here, he says, we've, been, we've received the spirit of the world that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. The most glorious truth imaginable. You don't have to pay a cent. It's free. It's not like the crowds in Corinth where you would pay great money to hear this foolish wisdom of the world that's gonna do nothing but lead to your own death. Rather, the only true wisdom, the only wisdom of God won't cost you a thing. Why? Because it costs Jesus Christ everything. Jesus Christ, the infinite debt that you owe God, that I owe God, Jesus paid on your behalf so that you might receive the spirit free of charge and you might receive the understanding of the gospel free of charge. Do you see how different? Not only is the spirit of the world leading to your own death, it costs you money. You, you actually pay to be led to your own death versus the only true spirit, the one who will lead you to life, the one that leads you into the eternal kingdom of love and peace and justice is free of charge. Paul drawing the strongest contrast here imaginable. Then he moves on, verse 13. And we impart this, this gospel in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths for those who are spiritual. Simply here, he's saying, we teach by the same spirit that we received. In the same way that we received the spirit of God, not the spirit of the world, we teach by the spirit of God and not the spirit of the world. We didn't come to you with the latest and greatest of human wisdom, we came to you with the only wisdom that is from God. We came to you with the gospel. The gospel is the only true message because it's the only message that's from God. Everything else is a pathetic grasp that falls infinitely short of what we brought you. Something that's happening is the Corinthians, again, as they love their worldly teachers, they're beginning to kind of challenge Paul's authority, doubt that he has their kind of best intentions at heart. And Paul is saying, of the two, who's out for your good? The ones who will charge you money and give you advice that leads to your own death or me that's going to preach you the only truth that that exists, the gospel that leads to life. We teach by what we, the same spirit that we have received. Again, remember the spirit that you have received, this new understanding. How should that new understanding of the gospel that you have make you look different than those who have the understanding of the world? How How does that make us look different? Is it just that we're more moral? Is it just that we're more conservative? Right? There are plenty of moral and conservative people who don't have the spirit of God. Or is it now we live with this new understanding of the gospel? So when we live in a world filled with anxiety, we're a people of peace. We're people of rest, knowing that our king is infinitely good and he is infinitely in control. And even if we can't see it, we trust that he's good and he's working everything out for the good of those who love him. In the midst of an anxious world, you're a people of rest. In the midst of a world that's terrified of death, you're a people of hope, knowing, yes, we all die, but the glorious resurrection awaits us. That worst case scenario for you is eternal joy with the king of the universe in his eternal kingdom, right? Does that new understanding make us look different? Are we a people of hope in a world that is paralyzed with fear and knowing that the gospel has made a way? The gospel has brought the resurrection that we have our future secure 
Again, Paul's saying, do you see this understanding that you've received, this reality of the gospel that's freely given to you? Don't let the spirit of the world draw you away from the glorious understanding that you've received. That's gonna be his second point. And the third point, he's talked about we've received this revelation of the spirit, it's brought this new understanding. Now how does that transform you? How does the gospel, how does the spirit transform us to be the people of the gospel? Let's look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself judged by no one. For who, understand, or who has understood the mind of the Lord so to instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. So Paul has just explained there's two types of spirits, right? Spirit of God, spirit of the world that lead to two different types of understandings. And now he's gonna say there's two different types of people that result from those two different spirits. Okay, there's natural people, right, that come from that spirit of the world. They don't understand the gospel. They reject the gospel. And then there's spiritual people, those who have been transformed by the gospel. So natural people reject the things of God. They think the gospel is foolish and they can't understand it. Why? Paul says simply, they don't have the spirit. They don't have the spirit that would reveal to them the beauties of the gospels. And no one can understand the wisdom of God, the gospel outside of the spirit. Why don't people just see the ridiculousness of man's attempts to save the world, of man's attempts to, of, of utopia? Why can't they just see over and over again, we fall drastically, drastically short? Why, why is that not obvious to everybody by now? Why can't we just finally say, hey, maybe God's got some good idea, right? You have those thoughts. Why? Paul simply says, the spirit hasn't revealed it. They don't have the spirit, right? It's simple, yet it's profound. Unless the spirit reveals it, they can't see, they're blind. Natural people reject it because they don't have the spirit of God. So we have the natural people and the next, the spiritual people. These are the people that have been transformed by the gospel, transformed by the spirit. They've, the gospel's been revealed to them, they have the understanding, and now as a result, they see everything. They're transformed to see everything through the reality of the gospel. Everything you see now is through the lenses of the gospel, if you will. So what does that look like? Paul's gonna say in verse 15, uh, spiritual, uh, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. What does he mean by that? Let me tell you what he doesn't mean first. Pharisee, Paul is not saying that we Christians get to pharisaically kind of judge everybody and then uh, when people judge us, we get to say, don't judge me, only God can judge me. Right? That's not what he's saying. In fact, we have a blog on that. Here's our, here's, our, here's our Parkway plug. We have a blog on that called Only God Can Judge Me. Uh, spoiler, the Bible's never gonna give you warrant to just walk in your own sin and then when someone rebukes you and does what Jesus tells them to do in rebuking you of your sin, you say, only God can judge me, right? The Bible's never gonna give you a uh, warrant to do that. But Paul is not saying that, so what, what, what is Paul saying? Remember the context here. Paul is saying you're not natural people, you've been made spiritual people, you're not blind, you haven't rejected the gospel because you have the spirit and now you see everything in light of the gospel. Everything in light of the gospel. You now know, as someone who's been transformed, that there is a way that seems right to man, but you know it leads to death. You know that living for yourself isn't actually the goal of life. In fact, it's rebellion, right? It would make sense. Yeah, I'm here, I live for myself, build my own kingdom, and you now know that's actually rebellion against your creator. And in fact, that fights against your ultimate joy, which is knowing him and being in fellowship with him. You know that truth doesn't come from within, but rather the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? 
Truth has to come from our God, Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see what is sin. You see that the gospel heals. You now see everything through the lenses of the gospel. It's trans, you've been transformed in that way. You judge all things, if you will, by the reality of the gospel because the Spirit has transformed you. And then you're judged by no one. What does that mean? Again, remember the context. The natural world has rejected the gospel and therefore cannot see. And so Paul is saying when they lob judgments against you for living out the gospel, you're not beholden to those judgments. You're not under those judgments. So uh, let me give an example. So Jeff uh, is his ethnic makeup. He loves a fourth of himself more than anything else. The Japanese part of himself, he loves. He loves sushi. He's always talking about sushi. He eats everything with chopsticks. And so if you were to come to Jeff and say, sushi is gross and should be eaten by no one. There, I've made a judgment. He would say to you, have you ever had sushi? And you say, yes, I was on a road trip one time and I was hungry and I pulled over to a 7-Eleven who had just lost its power because it was last week. And so I ate some sushi that was on their shelf that was a little warm and it was gross. And so sushi is gross. And he would say, you have not had sushi. Your judgments are nothing. You are blind to reality. You've eaten warm fish wrapped in seaweed. Here, come, taste good sushi. And then your eyes will be opened, right? You can't see because you haven't tasted reality. Right? If you were to go to Carl and say, classical music is dumb, and so is the French horn, and he says, have you ever listened to it? And you say, yes. I was walking down the hall, and Zach was playing piano, and it sounded bad. So classical music is bad and dumb. He would say, your judgment is nothing. You have not actually seen classical music, right? Your judgment doesn't mean anything. I, nor classical music, falls under your false judgment. If you were to go to Tim and say, baseball is boring and for old people, and he says, come watch a game with me, you would leave that game saying, yes, baseball is still dumb and boring, right? (laughs) So that's what uh, Paul is saying here. The world, the outside world cannot see, and therefore, when they lob their judgments at you, you're not under those judgments. The early church called their worship services love feasts. They called each other brother and sister because they've been made a new family. They talked about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus Christ, communion. And they were known for adopting children. In Roman society, children would just be thrown out if they weren't wanted. And so Christian would go and take those babies and adopt them. And the outside world looking at these weird new gospel people, these new spiritual people, you know what they thought? And you know what the popular judgments were? Those are a bunch of incestuous baby eaters. In their love feast, these brothers and sisters are gathering, and they're always talking about eating flesh and drinking blood, and they keep grabbing all these babies off the street. And so Paul would say to them, hey, don't worry, you're not actually incestuous baby eaters. They just misunderstand. And similarly, when the world today looks at you and calls you a bigot, because you hold to God's beautiful design, biblical design of marriage between one man and one woman, when you're called a racist because of the color of your skin that God created you in, by the way, Right? Paul would say, those are ridiculous accusations. When you're called exclusive because you say Christ is the only way to the Father, he would say, you're not beholden of those judgments. The natural people don't understand the gospel and therefore their accusations against you don't hold any weight. That's what he's saying here. We're judged by, not judged by the outside world. And so there's, there's two things I want you to see here from this passage. First, Christians, believers, should not be getting their ideas of how to solve the broken world from that broken world. Christians should not be getting their solutions to how to solve the broken world from that broken world. If there's anything Paul's making abundantly clear here, it's that the natural world that rejects the gospel cannot see. 
Right? They cannot see reality here, and so you should not use wisdom from the world to solve something the gospel was meant to solve. What's dangerous about Christians accepting things like critical theory and intersectionality that we've talked a lot about that's been all in the news, what's dangerous about that isn't just that they're Marxist. I mean, I have my reservations about communism, but uh, our ultimate hope isn't in capitalism succeeding. The ultimate danger in Christians accepting these ideas from the world is that it says, God forgot to address something. God forgot something with this whole, my gospel's gonna heal the entire world thing. Let's go into man's wisdom and help him out a little bit, right? Please don't be so arrogant as to think you can supply something to the wisdom of God from the wisdom of the world. That's the first thing. We should not be getting our solutions to solve the broken world outside of the gospel. We judge all things by the gospel, Paul says. And the second thing I want you to see is there's a way to read this passage, to see these two types of people and feel superior. In fact, the Corinthians are constantly struggling with that. There's a massive pride problem in Corinth. They're constantly boasting in in themselves. And there's a way to read this and say, I thank you, God, that I'm not like those natural people. If only the natural blind people could see like us spiritual people, the whole world would be right again. And if if you're not careful, you're exactly like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. Thank you, God, that you made me so great. What is your reaction, if I can bring it just as as close as possible? What is your reaction, now that we see everyone's, you know, tweets 24-7, we see everything on the news, what is your reaction when someone has a different conviction than you, holds different values than you, votes different than you? Is it a broken heart and prayer that God might open their eyes, send the Spirit to actually reveal the truth to them, or frustration with their stupidity? because if only they were as smart as you, the world wouldn't be the mess that it is. Which of the two? There's a way to feel superior. And if you feel that way, in that moment, you've gotten Paul's words here exactly backwards, and you've totally misunderstood the gospel. And you've actually become like the natural people in the world that say, my wisdom will solve all things. My wisdom will solve all things. Paul here is saying it's not because we're smarter, it's not because we're more educated, it's completely by the grace of God. Outside of God's grace, you're no different. God didn't save you because of your social status or your education. How could you ever look down on anybody else? You yourself were rescued when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Rather than pride, this should promote nothing but humility and worship. It should make us a patient people. It should make us a prayerful people because apart from the grace of God, we are in the exact same boat. Spiritual people, Paul is saying, judge, uh, judge all things by the gospel and are not judged by those outside of the gospel. And then finally, our last verse, Paul is gonna put kind of a giant exclamation point, not just on this, pas- or not just on this past couple of verses, but really this whole passage about who the Spirit has made believers to be. And he quotes Isaiah 40. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so to instruct him? Who has understood the mind of the Lord so to instruct him? A a, a quote that the obvious answer is no one. In fact, let me read uh, Isaiah 40 in its context to just feel a bit more of the weight here. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and and closed the dust and the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and the earth in the balance? Who has measured the spirit of God or what man has shown him his counsel? Whom did he consult? 
And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who ta- and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him and they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. There is an infinite gulf between God and man. The nations are drop in a bucket. They're counted as less than nothing. Who could ever know his ways? The answer of Isaiah is obviously no one. And what answer does Paul give? Who could ever know the mind of God, the thoughts of God? We do. We have the mind of Christ, the mindset of Christ, the thoughts of Christ, if you will. Paul is trying to show the Corinthians here with this incredible exclamation point. Do you know where you're standing in history? Do you understand where you're standing in history? You are standing at the center point of God's revealed plan of salvation that has been hidden throughout the ages. You are not in the garden with Adam and Eve with only a promise. You're not with Abraham who only had a promise. You're not with David who only had a promise. You're not with the prophets who only had a promise of the Messiah to come. The Messiah has come. Salvation has come. And it's been revealed to you. And you understand it and you've been transformed by it. Remember the spirit you've received and remember who the gospel has made you to be. That's how Paul ends here. Remember who the spirit of God has transformed you to be. And notice the shift here from the spirit. We've been talking about the spirit this whole time. Notice the shift to Christ. Why didn't he say, you know, we have the mind of the spirit or we have the mind of God? And I think what Paul's doing here, especially in quoting Isaiah, is he's alluding to the question that was, that's been underlying this whole passage, which is, how could this be? How could this wisdom that's been hidden throughout the ages, how has it been revealed to us? Why us? How has it come and been revealed to us? And in quoting Isaiah, Paul, I think, is intentionally pointing to the answer. Because if you keep reading Isaiah, you'll see a character, the suffering servant of God, the suffering servant that when there is this infinite gap between God and man comes to a people who are blind and a people who consider the wisdom of God foolish and he is despised and he's rejected and he's pierced for the transgressions of the people and he's bruised for their iniquities and the Lord lays on him their iniquities. And I think Paul here is saying, because of the wounds of Jesus Christ, this infinite gulf between God and man has been healed. The infinite gulf has been healed. And as a result, he's come down from his heavenly throne. He's revealed to you the hidden plan of salvation, right? He's the image of the invisible God. He was misunderstood so that you could receive understanding and he was crushed so that you might be transformed by the gospel. You might receive the spirit, understand God's plan of salvation that no eye had seen, nor ear heard, nor heart even imagined, the incredible gospel. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, you have received the spirit of God that has made you a people of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that your word is constantly screaming at us to worship. Lord, the reality that, again, we didn't go on a, on a search for you Lord, we didn't go searching for you. In in fact, it was the opposite. We were rebels. We hated you. We were running from you. We wanted nothing to do with you. We were constantly misunderstanding. We were the blind, natural people, but because of your infinite grace that we will never fully understand, you saved us. You sent your son to take our place, die the death we should have died, pay the debt that we owed you so that we might freely receive 
salvation, that we might receive the Spirit to constantly convict us of our sin, point us back to you, the seal of our salvation, that we might one day enter your eternal kingdom where we will spend all of eternity worshiping you, fellowshipping with you, sharing in the most glorious, unimaginable communion with our Trinitarian God. We praise you for who you are. We pray that your gospel would constantly weigh heavily on our hearts, that we might never be drawn back into the so-called wisdom of the world. Pray in your son's holy name. Amen.